In this episode, we discuss the theory of happiness as propounded by Tal Ben-Shahar, a psychologist, and we assess the happiness of Jason Voorhees. We look at him from literally all dimensions, spirituality, physicality, intellectual, relational, and emotional well-being. So if you really want to know how happy Jason is, come and find out. John. Brian, how's it going? John, it's going well. How are you, John? I'm well. I'm witnessing your, your body here. It's in three dimensions. I can touch it. I can smell it, although that has nothing to do with 3D. And uh, yeah, it's pretty remarkable. I don't think touching it has anything to do with 3D either. That's also true. Yeah. Yeah. So I'm, I guess I'm just seeing you in 3D. I have two eyes. I have binocular vision. And as I, as I move my head, I can, uh, I can see the background shifting behind you. Is that, is that a 3D? I'm not sure what 3D is. Maybe you can explain <laughs> what exactly 3D is. Uh, I, I believe D is for dimensions. And mm. those would be height, width, and also depth. Is there mm. any? The yeah, three probably. Right. Doesn't include time passing. Well, as that that's dimension. The, the, that's 4D mm. or 4 4K. I don't know. <laughs> we all watch movies uh, with time as a dimension. Yeah, and sometimes time moves fast and sometimes slow. But mm -hmm. most most movies are in 2D, meaning that we see height and width, I suppose, but not depth. In its because it's a flat screen, right? It's a plane, one plane from geometry class. I remember that. It's a rectangle, actually, not a square. A square is a different object. Hmm. We watched a, a movie, however, that was filmed in 3D. Yeah, we did. And it was the third installment, ironically, of the Friday the 13th series. We had to watch it in 3D. 3D glasses, full experience. Yeah, and you don't have uh, the, the, the paper... Uh, 3D glasses that I remember from my childhood, but you have proper electronic ones, <laughs> like you use them quite often. <laughs> yeah. I, well, you know, this movie came out originally in 3D. What, 83 was the release? I can't remember. 82, something like that. has 83. to be 83, the way we're going. That's true. And, um, and you know, what's interesting is that it, it really wasn't in that many theaters in 3D. It opened in 813 theaters that were outfitted with 3D, the data I could get didn't go back to 83. It went back to 1987. But in 1987, there were around 20,000 theaters or 20,000 screens. I don't know how many. I guess we have multiplexes. So 20,000 screens. Of those 20,000 screens, only about 800 were outfitted with 3D. So you got to imagine if you're living in 82, 83, and, and you want to go see a 3D movie, it's not as accessible. So this experience that we had, fairly unique, you know, yeah. fairly unique. I, I felt its uniqueness and um glad I got to glad, got to check this off my bucket list. Right. If if we would consider the population of the United States and ask them, "Hey, have you seen Friday the 13th 3, part 3?" A small portion would raise their hands and then you say, <laughs> "Did you see it in 3D?" And then a bunch of hands would go down, you know what I'm saying? Yeah. Yeah, it was a special experience and <laughs> so there's lots of of uh scenes in the movie that are only there to exploit for the audience's delight the 3d technology like mm. you know moving a moving a, a, a rake in such a way that it points towards the audience and so on so i wonder what those scenes if they landed a bit more flat to the majority of uh, two-dimensional viewers flat yeah probably although 3d seems to come in and out of popularity is it out of popularity right now would you say I would say, yeah, I think that, like, I did a li little research. Creature from the Black Lagoon, that was in 3D. It was actually released in 3D. That was, like, the first, let's just call it the first stage of 3D. There could have been a, you know, a more primitive stage, but thinking about popular release. And then the second stage, I would say, would be around this time frame where Friday the 13th Part 3 came out, where you had Jaws in 3D. and it's then 40-year gap. Oh, thank you for noting that. 40-year gap, because there might be a trend here. Uh, and that was 1980, let's just say 85, make it easy. Um, and then, yeah, Jaws 3D, you had Amityville 3D, a couple other 3D movies. Then it died, and then it came back with uh, Avatar, I think, was one of the first ones that really ushered in a new era of 3D movie viewing in the modern age, which would be, I don't know, when did that come 20, out? 20, 20, 
2015 would fit the 40 year uh, cycle. Well, let me look up Avatar real quick. Maybe we're discovering something here. So maybe we should be an early investor in 3D 40 yeah. years from now. Yeah, around 2040. Uh, Wait, 2050, 2055. There's going to be another the- surge. So yeah, get your get your get your stocks <laughs> around 20, 2050. <laughs> Avatar came out in 20, uh, 2009. So it's well, still it's within yeah. the margin of error. <laughs> and I wonder where this sort of popularity kind of blossoms and then dissipates. Maybe it's because you go to see a movie and you want to be engrossed, but also near your partner, near your humans that you're kind of staying with or, or, or you know, sort of interacting with. The 3D aspect creates a barrier there. You don't have a shared experience could be that um we just kind of as humans inject 3d just as uh, our natural assumption that these although i don't see it in 3d i can easily relate this to a 3d object and so therefore i don't necess- i don't need this technology i can make that that leap without without the assistance of a, a 3d glasses um or it's just distracting i don't know i'm not sure i can't say your experience in watching 3D movies or Friday the 13th Part 3, would you say that it added to the movie, distracted? Mm, it didn't distract, no. I think that it's a cool experience. The uh, Like I said, some of the scenes were just useless except for demonstrating the power of 3D. I, I did see, I feel like, one of the recent Star Wars movies in 3D. I don't remember wearing glasses, though. Maybe I did. I don't know. But... Um, that, that was cool. So yeah, I don't know if there's, in terms of the filmmaking, if it requires special equipment or it's pricier or what, but it feels like a technology that should be, uh, utilized more. I think unless motion sickness is the only downside, like potentially people getting sick. Could that be a, a thing that accounts for the lull? They do upcharge if you go to the no, theater. So you may want, may not want to spend the extra money. Is it but... bring your own glasses? I bring my own glasses, yeah, and I actually just watch the movie in the parking lot, so I save money there, too. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, Yeah, so Jason Voorhees' three-dimensional movie. The second wave of 3D movies. Mm -hmm. Another thing I wanted to establish right out of the gate here is timeline. So we've toyed with some ideas around doppelgangers or, you know, sort of... uh, copycat killers and, and I, I think that I, I wouldn't call your investigations uh toying around john i would call them probing searches for the truth what we're looking for here is the real experience but i think in part three i think this was jason Voorhees. you think we finally our, got him i what, think we fi- <laughs> <laughs> i think we finally watched a movie about him <laughs> what what uh evidence convinced you that this was indeed not another copycat killer yeah, so this is the first Friday the 13th movie that I was convinced I watched Jason Voorhees. He seemed to have a very distinct face, a very distinct character. There was no other sort of possibility of strange motivations and such. He was just out there killing, you know. There wasn't much Pamela Voorhees influence in this movie as there were as as it was with the other movies, especially the second one. For whatever reason, maybe you could pinpoint it. I just didn't feel like there was another possibility to this story arc related to Jason Voorhees. Yeah, I mean, I think the you, you hit the two problems that we saw with the earlier identification. Uh, in the second film, he ranges too far away from Crystal Lake, mm-hmm. and, and he did not do that in this movie. And uh, Pamela Voorhees was the issue in the first movie, obviously. Mm-hmm. So that, that cast out on him as the central protagonist. And and she's clearly not the killer anymore. So who else could it be but Jason? Plus, he finally he dons in this movie his iconic hockey mask, which is not direct evidence that it's him, but it's it ties in with the later films. Right. And so there's a, a linear aspect there. Thank you for clarifying that and, and giving um, weight to that potential definition of who Jason Voorhees is and, and how he fits more cleanly into the part three here. And if we're going to, if we're going to assume it was Jason Voorhees, then we need to really commit to a timeline. So mm-hmm. 1957 is when he drowned at that point in time, he was 11 years old in 1978 is when Pamela Voorhees comes back to the camp and 
murders the camp counselors. That was in 78. Assuming that Jason Voorhees is underwater, aging in time, let's just assume he's part of the same space-time continuum that we are. That would put him at age 32. And that's Pam. That's Pam's first revenge in 1978? That's her first push into... Well, she, you know, set some fires and such, but that's the, that's the first time she pushed into... Uh, killing camp counselors was in 78. That was part one. Okay. And then interesting thing here is that in part three, Chris, one of the characters, which we haven't introduced yet, she was attacked by Jason Voorhees, but that actually happened before part two. That happened two years. Yeah. So part two happened in 1983. What's what's the character's name uh, who got attacked? So Chris, the female who had some hesitations to come back to Crystal Lake because when she was younger, she ran away from her parents and hid in the woods. And then when she was in the woods, she was attacked by Jason Voorhees, as mm-hmm. she remembers. Yeah. And, and I recall that scene. Jason was wearing nothing, not a, not a potato sack nor a hockey mask. He was just stark naked. That's true. Oh, he and, had his... No, I meant on his face. Oh, I see. Uh, yeah. And so... Part two, Friday the 13th, part two happened in 1983. And then part, part three happened right after that. So yeah, literally like the same day. Yeah. The same day. And so if that's the case, then when Chris was attacked two years previous, that would have put the attack, um, gosh, that put the attack at 81, which would make Jason Voorhees 35 at that point in time. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, so I just want to get some ages. And then and then on part three, Jason Voorhees would be 37 years old. He's getting old up there, you know what I'm saying? He's he's not a young, spry, returned from the dead Jason Voorhees at age 37. Right. He's a fully uh, mature adult. Yeah, and so that, that kind of brings us up to speed here as far as timeline goes. It's good. Yeah, it feels, feels right. Mm-hmm. Do you want to give a summary for part three? I'd love to, John, but I'm afraid yeah. that this this plot is so paper thin that this one might actually take me under 10 seconds. Oh, that's great. That'd be a new record. Yeah. So we're back at Camp Crystal Lake. There are no counselors whatsoever. There are just a gang of friends. They are camping at some cabins, seemingly, for one night. And uh, the only the only development is that on a run to the grocery store, they provoke some a small gang three three gang members who then enter the the cast of characters jason kills everybody and uh, that's kind of it <laughs> yeah there's only two characters in this movie that have any depth shelly the 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 dork yep and chris chris the who got attacked yeah so shelly is this kind of dorky guy who is trying to win over people by pranking them. He has depth. He has a certain sadness to him, a certain isolation. And I was actually thinking about how Jason Voorhees might be representing some symbolic being isolated, feeling a sense of isolation from others, not being able to connect with others, you know, being both isolated internally and externally. So mm. Chris and Shelley kind of fit the same construct where hmm. uh, where Shelly is kind of like this dork he can't connect socially with others he uses this gimmick of pranking and then he he doesn't he, he can't even kind of get with ladies like he just is by himself and doesn't feel like he's part of the group then chris who comes back to camp crystal lake after having a traumatic experience in the woods is kind of removed from her boyfriend or romantic partner i don't want to put a label on that and doesn't seem to be able to connect and feels a sense of isolation. And so I'm thinking, okay, two characters in this movie who have any level of depth, both are kind of suffering from the same experience. And then how does Jason Voorhees step in here as some symbolic uh, parallel or dialogue in relation to that? I, I couldn't come up with anything, actually. So, Well, I, I think uh, the hockey mask might be emblematic of Jason's mm. isolation. Who, right. who who out on the ice is more alone than the goalie? Wow. Wow. That's right. That guy's by himself. The team hopes he stops a puck. Sometimes he doesn't. Yeah. And um he he's got a he's got more pads on and, and a bigger hockey stick. But 
uh, yeah, it's got to be long periods of idleness and then and then sudden peak experiences of anxiety as as the puck gets closer. Much like much like Jason, he has. Mm-hmm. Decades of inactivity, <laughs> and then suddenly some teenagers show up, and he has to commit incredible numbers of serial homicides within a twenty-four hour window. He doesn't want to; he has to. Yeah, yeah. No, I, well, I, that's yeah, a good point. I mean, isolation is a big factor in uh, avoiding it. I should say it's a big factor in in living a happy life. Oh, really? How do you mean? Well. Um, I, I watched a video, John, about happiness. I was I was mm-hmm. interested in happiness, right? And uh, this this video was uh, presented the ideas of a of a psychologist named Tal Ben Shahar, mm. and he studies happiness. And um, he has a theory about happiness that that it's basically built up of five components. Uh, there's there's spiritual aspects that we need to tend, uh, physical, intellectual relational and emotional. And uh, I thought the framework of Tal Ben-Shahar would give us a good lens through which to assess whether Jason is truly happy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> okay, yeah, let's use it. So, yeah, it's tough to say. I mean, who's really yeah. happy? But well, in well, this, well, in this well, instance, it's well, a case study. Just before we dive into the, to the five aspects of happiness, how, how would you answer that question? Do you, do you think Jason is happy? He's definitely value driven. He he has something that he has a task to do, and he puts a lot of effort into it. That gives some purpose. He does seem isolated, so the relational piece feels a little bit of a struggle for him. Yeah, but I think it's going to be it's going to be a weakness for him. But you know, relationships are durable, even if someone isn't there. So I can think back and close my eyes and think back to people that I've met and people I've interacted with, and it brings me a sense of warmth and connection even though they're not in the room and they could be even dead, much like Jason Voorhees' mother. As long so, as you have their sweaters, though, you're, you're able to... Right. You need a transitional object like that, like the sweater. And uh, yeah, and he, maybe he wears the sweater, maybe he smells the sweater, and it smells like uh, Pamela Voorhees' uh, corpse. I don't know, I don't know what, what, he, what kind of connection he has there, but uh, yeah. So a uh, little isolation there. You know, and thinking about Jason Voorhees as, as, a, as a person who appears to be very monolithically focused on killing people. Just as a side note here, I would put him outside of a personality disordered type individual, someone who you might describe as pathological or someone who you might describe as, um, I don't know, like, uh, like a psychopath. I wouldn't put him in that category. He, yeah, I think that it's tough here because he has a biological condition that might be influencing his thinking. And until we rule out the biological impact of his his condition, which I have written down in the previous episode, so hydrocephaly, wasn't it? Yeah, uh, excess fluid in the brain at birth, I yeah. believe, was the hydrocephalus. Yeah, hydrocephaly, I believe, is the noun. Oh, okay, hydrocephaly. Um, let's, call, let's call it that. Yeah, okay. our listener can correct us if we're wrong. Yeah, please do. And so in, unless that has been ruled out as a potential influence of behavior, I can't go straight personality on this to some sort of psychopathology. So I'm just saying that um, in relation to his happiness, that could be a major impact. Yeah, that's true. I mean, all this this model that is presented in the video is uh, presumably not accounting for deep uh, inborn Traits of of a maladaptive quality, however you want to qualify, <laughs> hydrocephaly. <laughs> yeah. So, um, but yeah, I would I would say overall, physically he looks to be pretty physically fit. Mm-hmm. Spiritually, he's guided by a purpose, and maybe well, let's, uh, let's take these one at a time. So, oh, I'm start, sorry, start, I'm just running through here. So, and if, if we go on physical, yeah, um, certainly he seems at the height of his powers. Um, however, the, the, the real uh, crux of the physical component, these five components, is stress. He doesn't seem stressed, outwardly stressed. Um, but again, his lack of uh, emotion may be a factor of us only seeing him with a potato sack on his head or a hockey mm-hmm. mask over his face mm-hmm. or him being in a lake. So the, the outward signs aren't really visible to the viewer, despite all the three-dimensional glasses. 
I can definitely I can definitely say he was distressed because when he went into the barn to kill Chris at the very end and Chris was hiding in the rafters, he was throwing things aside, yeah. obviously not being able to find her. And, and that caused a certain amount of distress. I, I almost I would say he might have been overwhelmed. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and with stress, stress is all right as long as you have a period of recovery, which I think Jason does. He has mm-hmm. decades of free time in between these movies mm-hmm. to be in the woods, to relax in his cabin, to smell the sweater. Right. And so I, I, I don't, I don't think stress is going to be something that is working against his happiness. He, he takes time to himself. He has mm-hmm. his little candle set up with a little meditative practice. Mm-hmm. I, I can see that. Yeah. Lots of vacation time. He's also by the lake, which seems yeah. very serene. And Na- uh, nature does wonders. He's basically mm-hmm. um, Thoreau out there, you know, by Walden Pond. So we don't think that his physical condition is a concern. Is that where we're, st- is that where that, we're at? That's, I, I think not only is it not a detriment i think his physical well-being may actually rank quite highly in in terms of producing happiness because of the nature and the and the long periods of time off between his uh, killings and he also demonstrated high amounts of of strength at one point mm-hmm. in part 3 he is literally hanged and he's able to yeah. reach up over his head and and lift himself with mm-hmm. the rope to unstrangle the rope around his neck. And uh, I mean, if anyone is able to do that, they've probably put in some time in the gym, you know, the woods gym, picking up logs the, and the um, woods gym. Yeah. The, the, you know, the gym in the woods, you got to pick up the logs, you got to throw the rocks, you got to climb the trees. Uh, and then you mentioned spiritual. Yeah. This is about finding a sense of meaning and purpose in your life, which definitely Jason's meaning and purpose is 100% on point. There, there's no other purposes that he has except to keep that lake free of camp counselors visitors of any kind at this point basically anyone south of of 30 that's his purpose (laughs) and and, uh one of the things that a sense of purpose confers upon us is um the ability to overcome barriers. And I think we, we see Jason constantly overcoming barriers throughout the movie, barriers of <laughs> doors of, uh, mm-hmm. of window curtains getting hung. Right. There, there's, there's literally uh, yeah. no barrier that seems to be able to uh, prevent him from reaching his purpose. So I think physical, really strong and also uh, spiritual. I would rank quite highly. Okay. Yeah. I'll give you that. And like I said earlier, whether he has the candles set up and the meditative practice and, he is responding to something internally that may even feel externally as he hears the cha-cha-cha well, type yeah. sounds. Yeah. I think and, another, another positive sign perhaps for his spiritual being is that we hear the, uh, that sound mm-hmm. less often in part three, I felt like. So I think mom, mm-hmm. mom's, mom's voice, mom's imperative voice might be quieting as he ages now, 37. Mm, right. So there's maybe a, He's maybe internalized that and made it more part of himself. And yeah. now he, now he's more foundationally attached to that. And it's kind of part of his being. No longer yeah. just an obedient son, but a, but an active uh, chooser of uh, the Camp Crystal Lake cleaning process. He's really becoming someone, becoming himself, really. Yeah. So, yeah, that's spiritual, physical. Uh, the third is uh, intellectual. I think this, this, is, this might be where Jason struggles a little bit. Um, this is this is about asking questions, being curious, uh, engaging deeply with uh, books or works of art. Um, I, I, I don't see Jason doing that in the film unless he's got a bookshelf or a, sort of a, um, you know, some of those audio tapes mm. since it was the 80s uh, sort right. of off off view in, in his cabin. Do you think he goes uh, back home and starts up the film strip and, and uh, engages deeply with uh, learning? Well, uh, I, I'd imagine that an AM-FM radio is within reach. I, I don't, can't remember if he had one in his shack in part two, but he mm. could just, you know, grab a couple of double A's and tune in to Casey Kasem or, you know, and, and kind of just it, maybe he's into public radio. You know, yeah. it's difficult to know what he's doing there in the private time. I feel like ham radio would be a perfect hobby for Jason. Well, you got to get registered and, and there's a whole process there. Yeah. He also doesn't say much, I, I, you know, so the I would say that his method of approaching his kills has a sense of 
analysis to it. He doesn't just mm. go running into a room and swinging an axe, although at times he might find himself overwhelmed by his project and, and the project might be around him and he's trying to, you know, eliminate these camp counselors. But he kind of observes, looking around. He's in the woods, kind of seeing what people are doing, kind of assessing scene, counting numbers, thinking about when I should kill someone. Typically, he does it when someone has found themselves by themselves. They're isolated from other, and then he can then engage. And so there's a method there, an analysis there, something that shows that he's intellectually engaging in the process and, and isn't just haphazardly engaging in this major, major project of his. Yeah, there's a lot of stalking, I suppose, that, that goes on. He has to find that perfect moment where someone has gone off alone to the bathroom or to check the generator mm -hmm. or to take a shower. But I, I personally don't really view that as, as deep intellectual engagement. I think rather it's, it's, a, it's a pretty automatic process of um, hiding behind a tree and noticing someone being alone. And then and he's not even very creative with his killings. I feel like most of it is hatchets to the face or mm. stabbings with, with a spear. There's not, there's not a lot of variety to his uh, methodology. So I, I, mm. I, I think Jason could, uh, could get more intellectually engaged, and, and uh, maybe we'll see that in future movies, but I don't see that at this point. I'll give one example. So at one point, the electricity goes out, and I can't remember why. But Jason then goes into the shack where the breaker box is and hides there and anticipating that a, a victim or, you know, another project comes into the shack and then he attacks that individual as they were trying to readjust the, the power panel. So, again, it's sort of like this future thinking, planning, entrapment type process that I, I think takes a considerable amount of uh, intellectual in engagement. You know, he has to, he has to conceptualize it. Future thinking, that's a challenge. Planning, baiting, he has to understand human behavior. He has to understand electricity to some degree. So I, I hear what you're saying. Like he isn't, I, I didn't see him crack open, you know, a Hume book and, mm -hmm. and kind of peruse that. Uh, but I, I do see the, the the complexity in what she's trying to engage in these killings. So, well, I think here his his developmental mm, history plays a role for for certain. Um, would you characterize Jason as curious? His curiosity is triggered by the presence of camp counselors, and he did assemble a shack in part two. That's true. Which was fairly complex. You also got to get to the idea that. He only has one eye that really works well, and assuming that works well at all, I doubt he's going to the optometrist. At age 37, there's probably some degrading to his vision. He, he may not be able to read. So I'm, I'm going to, the spire model, spiritual, physical, intellectual, relational, and emotional, I'm, I'm going to give him a five on both spiritual and physical. Five uh, out of five or out of ten? Five out of five, yeah. He's got that sense of meaning and purpose, no doubt. So that's spiritual. Uh, lots of time to recover some stress. So that's physical. Intellectual, I'm going to go with a two. What, what, is oh. your, what is your rating on intellectual? One last argument here, and I feel like I'm defending Jason, but you got to imagine the platform that he's standing on. He has a, 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 a physical condition related to his brain structure, and so mm. there are some barriers to where he might find himself or some limits to where he might find himself. So, you know, knowing what he's operating with, I think he's doing the best he can. Um, mm. So, and the resources available to him, he doesn't have a public library card. He, you know, who, who knows if he can find batteries that are, still have power in them. So under the conditions, I think we have to kind of see Jason in environment here. I'm going to put him, uh, I'm going to put him at a four, honestly. Mm, a th really? I, a, maybe a three, but uh, how about a, a 3.5? With an asterisk next to it, because this is all predicated on his medical condition, his uh, developmental problems. You can't ask someone to do something they just physically can't do. Yeah. So the, the fourth criteria is relational, and I, I, I hope we both agree that this has to be the lowest mm -hmm. factor for him. Um, and, and according to the video, it was actually the, the number one predictor 
of happiness. So maybe it's the most important of the five. Mm. Uh, quality time was spent with people we care about and who care about us. I don't think anybody cares about Jason. I think he, he leads a pretty isolated life. I'd say even Pam Voorhees and her ghostly imperatives don't care for Jason. I think she cared for him when he was alive, but mm-hmm. uh, I, I think uh, he's got to be pretty isolated. Yeah, it's a good point with the with the concept that Pam Voorhees is using Jason as a tool at this point to accomplish her goals. The trauma of his own death at age 11 would further cement, I think, the belief that no one cares for me because I was allowed to die by these irresponsible sex-starved camp counselors. So that, that childhood trauma, that, that death from which he's recovering, <laughs> would, would itself even compound the negative uh, feelings of being isolated. There's an exploitive element from Mother where it's like, okay, I'm Jason Voorhees and I drowned. No one forced me into the water. I realized that uh, maybe camp counselors weren't watching me. But I decided to go into the water. Not a, not a good idea. I knew where the life preservers were. It's not like I've never been to a, a lake before. The camp counselors are somewhat of a scapegoat here because mother was at the camp. You know, she was the cook. So it's not like she was at home and it was totally Jason alone. Like she could have influenced Jason or been taking after a little closer to Jason was she the um, cook when he died? I thought she was a cook at a at a later round of counseling. No, I think she was a cook during the time in which he drowned. Hmm. Okay. Yeah. Well, you know, that's my understanding. Let's pretend we're Jason Voorhees and we just drowned in a lake. We're age 11. And then for the next, I don't know, 15 years, we're developing in the seaweed. And we wake up and we're like, okay, well, I need a revenge I need to take out these counselors because they did me wrong. I think the first round of counselors would have been sufficient for me. Maybe even Mm. just like two counselors. But then I'm being egged on here by my mother to the point where I'm not even making my own decisions to some degree. And now I'm kind of operating under my mother's conditions and not mine. So where's the limit here? I was thinking about this in part three. Where's the limit here where I've kind of stopped killing counselors because they did me wrong and now i'm just overdoing it now i'm I'm really just overcompensating and killing more counselors than necessary do you feel like he's gone too far Mm, i feel like he's sort of an automaton like Mm. sort of he's the camp either has no counselors or he has to kill everybody and until there's no counselors again jason doesn't turn off I see what you're saying. So he's not inventorying this. It's more of a conditional state. It's either yeah, counselors yeah. are there, they must die. And then once they're dead, okay, good. As opposed to, okay, this is a nuanced one 11 year old death is equal to 15 dead counselors. It's not like that. It's not a, we're not no, trying no. to even the scales here. It's more a conditional state. I think he's, he's not keeping score. He's mm-hmm. just, is, is the camp today free of other humans? Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, dive into dive into the back end of the audiobooks and uh, read right. read read my Hume. Uh, <laughs> no, uh, time to put on the bag and go to work. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So, so the, yeah. Go ahead. So, what, what, what would you score him for uh, his relational well being? Right. Sorry one, about one that. Five. Uh, yeah, it's really a one. Because even with the animals that come around, he kills them. Maybe for food, I'm not sure. But even with uh, even nature itself is intolerable for Jason. I would I would also give him a one. Mm-hmm. Um, and that that's the number one predictor. So you know, weight that one more heavily than the other scores. Even at eleven, he felt that people weren't giving him the attention he needed relationally. Yeah. yeah. The final component is emotional. Mm. Uh, So this is about uh, finding ways to cultivate pleasurable emotions and also mm, learning how to recognize that painful emotions are not a a maladaptive phenomenon. They're they're a natural part of life and they're they're not necessarily a sign that your life is going badly. And the the video mentioned gratitude in particular as a um, pleasurable emotion that should be 
cultivated. I'm sure there are others. Do you do you think Jason is uh, grateful for his life, mm. his his uh, his uh, living on Camp Crystal Lake and doing what he does? Hmm. Well, it's difficult to say. That's such an internal emotion. It's such a it's 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 pretty inaccessible from the observer. Yeah, he's so um, nonverbal. It, it's hard to know whether he's looking around at the available victims and 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 inwardly uh rejoicing at all his mm. at all his um opportunities uh or if he's uh during the down periods if he's just contemplating the nature of the lake and his solitude and really enjoying it or yeah it's hard to know what what Jason feels on the inside I would probably put it low and one of the reasons is that he could have, as we talked about with the conditional state of those around the lake, there could be like an obsessional sort of quality here where he can't feel still until the lake area is still. He doesn't necessarily get a ton of pleasure out of killing all these people, but he feels compelled to do it. And that can be kind of a negative emotional state because you're disrupted the entire time that there's um, a counselor coming in or any, any individual actually. So then that kind of removes some of the pleasure of my purpose seeking. My purpose seeking here is to kill counselors, but the only reason why I'm doing it is to rid myself of this obsessional thought that they must not be here, but that I'm not really truly engaging in, in a positive emotional state and enjoyment mm. of what I'm doing. I'm, I'm being kind of propelled to do it because I, I feel a sense of discomfort that they're here. And so I'm trying to rid them so that I can find my sense of comfort again. But the actual process of doing it is not fulfilling to me. But even even when you, for example, you hear construction sounds out your window, for example, an unpleasant sound, there is a certain amount of relief and satisfaction and pleasure at the cessation of those sounds. So could, could it be argued, too, that although Jason's activities are obsessional and um, he, he must feel a small sense of, of pleasure, a positive emotion uh, when he drives the machete into each forehead. Mm-hmm. <laughs> thank, thank God. Thank God. That's one more down. That's one less counselor. I have to be on, have on my radar. Yeah. I, I, I don't want to, I don't want to insert my own value system on this, yeah, but the, true, rem- the removal of a negative, experience to then return to baseline of positivity and that spike of satisfaction once that negativity has been removed i don't know it doesn't feel to me like it's pleasure for pleasure's sake it it feels more like if i had chicken pox and then i felt terrible and then the day after i was cured of chicken pox that i was like oh wow i feel great but really i just feel like i did before i got chicken pox and so a return to baseline that brings a certain sense of pleasure but having chicken pox itself wasn't meaningful to me it was just a a place of displeasure that i have uh, i found myself in and then the ridding of it then brings me back to a place of oh yeah i used to feel pretty good about this being alive and healthy yeah i am it's hard to see jason cultivating gratitude i think he has a lot to be grateful for he has a he has a beautiful lake to live on and uh, lots of nature to be in and uh, abundant resources as far as the viewer can tell he's he's seems healthy and well fed and all that um self-sustaining mm-hmm. ind- independent lifestyle yeah that's true uh, but yeah it's hard to know if he has the mental faculties to verbalize externally or internally those those uh grateful feelings um also embracing painful emotions i feel like jason has an ability to rebound from death, which must be a painful experience. So <laughs> I don't know. I don't know whether he embraces being hung from a, a, the the loft of a barn, but certainly there's an internal uh, resilience that um, can't be denied. Yeah, th- I could see that where there's a satisfaction and independence and self-sustaining qualities and overcoming adversity. Maybe we could put it in that category. Is mm-hmm. that you know, yeah, yeah, yeah. Overcoming so, adversity, yeah. So, where would you score Jason on his emotional uh, well-being? Hmm. I, I'm leaning uh, pretty low on this one. Maybe, maybe also a one. 
Wow, not even a two. Mm, I don't. I don't. I mean, again, it's it's a one with an asterisk because of his developmental issues, but I don't see him embracing or cultivating embracing negatives or cultivating positives. Yeah. Okay. I'll lean to a two. Lean to a two on this. Hmm. I I do think that there is a because one is just so low. I feel like there is a certain emotional state and organizational state that's required for him to decide to build a home to live in to still go out and pursue killing camp counselors and such so i don't know i feel like it's not completely unstable or absent and i think one is just too low i i, I mean i could i'm having trouble thinking of who would a one be you know so i'm closing my eyes and considering okay what would a one look like i guess it kind of does look like jason doesn't it well, yeah, the, he he expresses no emotions, and and we're given no insight into his emotional state. So I I don't see any possibility except a one. Yeah, you're right. You convinced me. All right. So I I score him overall at a fourteen out of uh twenty five, and you're a little bit higher at a at a fourteen and a half. <laughs> no, fifteen and a half. <laughs> so you think Jason is happier than I do? Marginally, yeah. Again, it's I think I think the platform piece is really my argument on that, where if I there's a spectrum here and there's only so much he can gather based on his uh, medical condition in which he can find intellectual stimulation. And um, if if I find myself in a place in which I think I could be doing better, then there could be some negative emotion attached to that because there's disappointment in self. But if I if I'm looking at myself in full review and I'm just missing certain attributes, maybe he feels like he's doing real good, like damn good yeah, for yeah. What, what he's where he's found himself. So that's where I'm kind of giving him the benefit of the doubt. I, as a, a person who isn't suffering his medical condition, might think, oh, I could be doing more, but I can't be in that state and give him that that sort of I, I can't put that on him because he is at a completely different intellectual functioning here and maybe excelling in ways that someone else in the same condition wouldn't be able to function in this in you know at that level. So I don't know. That's that's where I'm kinda pushing into a higher score. Because if you have two uh Jason Voorhees or two people with the exact same medical condition, one may just be at home doing nothing, watching TV. But Jason's out there building houses, defending Crystal Lake planning his murders, putting a lot of time into the assessment and, uh, you know, pretty successful in that. Yeah. And I think another, another factor I would highlight in, in Jason's circumstances is, um, he, he's isolated. So that means that he's not presented with any role models of potentially better performance. Mm. And, and that, that's a source of stress, so this would go under physical well-being, I would argue. Um, so much of, of the stress that I feel is the stress of opportunity. Like I, I could be reading this book or I could be um, living in this place or doing this work and and being uh, alive in the early 1980s and cut off from all forms of mass communication as far as we can tell, except for maybe his ham radio and, and whatever mom repeats to him um mm -hmm. the he, he doesn't he doesn't have any notions of other possibilities and i would i would say that that's a, a big factor in his favor low, right low, again lowering his stress the stress of choice can be uh quite challenging yeah yeah so okay well that's fair that's fair happiness is a is a lifelong journey john mm -hmm. and um I don't know if we're going to see Jason again, but um, we keep discovering every movie that there are uh, further corners of Camp Crystal Lake, uh, further camps and hotels and vacation spots around this lake. And so mm -hmm. I think uh, Jason's prospects for continued meaningful work are mm -hmm. high. Wow, you have quite a visionary review of uh, Jason Voorhees. And uh, high confidence in his potential. I, I can only hope that his uh, relationships improve. I think uh, that that's questionable. But if I were if I were counseling him, so to speak, oh. 
I would, uh, I would uh, encourage him to reach out more. How would you become Jason Voorhees' friend if you were going to approach mm. Jason Voorhees and try and try and uh, build a friendship, kind of give him some relationship space? What, what might be your approach? Am I, am I a, a counselor, camp counselor, or just uh, someone strolling through the territory of Camp Crystal Lake? Just someone strolling right through. Just I'm just a citizen of the town, not Ralph, well, think, of course. Well, um, he would view me as an immediate threat, so I think my first friendly move would be to um escape from the the boundaries wherever they might precisely be of camp crystal lake so mm -hmm. he doesn't seem terribly swift uh, i think that i would i would outrun him uh hope hoping he would pursue me and then i would try to establish the point geographically where he stopped pursuing me thinking mm -hmm. that i was now uh no longer a threat to his territory and and then i would i would somehow mark that geographical point maybe i'd i'd put a rock there or just note note the local surroundings maybe my gps mm -hmm. device would come in handy there and then and then i would i would give him a few days to cool off you know let him forget about me but then i would i would sort of come back and experiment around that boundary with uh finding it maybe leaving him treats uh mm -hmm. maybe a picnic basket um with with some different varieties of food mm -hmm. uh he probably hasn't had candy or sweets of any kind so i would i would maybe do some of that mm -hmm. and then and then yeah just um like like you would with a wild animal john i mean you would you would uh win them over with with treats and you would sort of through physical proximity uh me being on the safe side outside camp crystal lake he, he being on his safe side inside crystal lake just establish that rapport of, of physical presence and then um, and then take it take it from there mm, wow okay well that's an approach my approach would be to show up with a camp counselor in the trunk and then murder that camp counselor right in front of him oh, and then, okay. and so, the, and the, yeah so kind of because you know people really engage around activities that they have uh, in common and and then once he saw that sort of a group on experience right right and then and then he'd be like who is this guy? Who is the, you know, the elegance in which that uh, camp counselor was slaughtered. And then, and then I'd have to do that like three or four times to really show that I'm committed to this, this process of friendship and, and showing shared activity. Do you, do you think uh, wearing a sweater would, would further um, your, your endeavors having a nice sweater on a cable knit sweater? I could see that pastel in color, not a bad idea. Maybe a, maybe a different type of mask. Maybe a, yeah, a welder's mask or something. Some something where he it would yeah. he wouldn't be able to see my expression because sometimes eye contact in itself can be intimidating and uh, you know invasive of space. So a welder's mask, murdering camp counselors would be my approach. Yeah, I think for my for my uh, leaving him treats on the boundary of Camp Crystal Lake, I would I would wear a, a, a scuba helmet. Hmm. Right. One of those old, old like eighteen hundred ones. Oh, nice! And um, and I would wear a, a, a definitely a cardigan of some of some thickness. We got to make sure that we mind our peripherals because you know with those masks on, he may sneak up left or right, and we may mm. not see him because uh, you know you, you get you, pretty narrow scope of vision when you have a a scuba mask like that on. Plus, it's pretty heavy. You can't play, you can't run that fast. Yeah. Well, it's all in the name of friendship. Yeah, I have, I have one complaint in this movie, if you can imagine. One complaint. One complaint. Everything went, everything went smoothly, except for one thing. And that mm. was that at the end, when Chris is in the canoe and mm. Jason Voorhees' mother comes blasting out of the lake and grabs her, that doesn't make sense to me because Chris would have never met Mrs. Voorhees or have any mm. conception of Mrs. Voorhees. So you're saying, therefore, it's not a hallucination. So in order for Chris to even have that hallucination, she would have had to have known of uh, Mrs. Voorhees. Yeah, I see what you're saying. Um, mm -hmm. Was was Miss Voorhees presented at any point in the film? Mm, did, did Chris ever see the sweater, for example? Not to my awareness. And uh, Chris never mentioned... Pamela Voorhees when she went talked about the flashback scene or so that's, yeah. my, that's, that's my only complaint 
I uh, I see the the merit of your complaint. I'm not sure um, that I can solve it for you. Yeah, yeah I because I, I see the police as as um, objective reporters, and they said that uh, there was no Pamela Voorhees. So, mm. plus her head was reattached, which seems problematic as well. That's true. I forgot about that. <laughs> yeah. Well, that was Friday the 13th, part three, John, in 3D. It was in 3D and it was part three and we did watch it. Yeah. Yeah. It, uh, I believe, closes our venture into uh, Jason Voorhees and his happiness and life. I wish him well. I hope that he's engaging in some of these positive activities that we've identified for him and that at some point he does develop friendships, some level of uh, connection to other, but I'm not confident. Nor am I. My, my only hope is I know there's a movie coming up where he and Freddy Krueger both appear. So if mm-hmm. he's going to be friends with anyone, it's going to be Freddy. He's not a camp counselor and they have a lot in common. Yeah. So yeah, that's if, true. If there's, if there's going to be a lid for this pot, um, mm-hmm. the pot being Jason, it's going to be, uh, the lid's going to be Freddy. Huh? Well, I, I think it had all come down to whether Freddy Krueger is at Camp Crystal Lake or not. That seems to be the overwhelming desire for Jason is to rid everyone from Camp Crystal Lake. So I, I guess I just don't see a point of intersection where they could have a conversation of, of, of peace and literally be standing on the same ground. I just don't see that happening, but, uh, yeah. well, if, if Freddie comes to Jason in a dream, mm-hmm. is, is, is Freddie at camp crystal Lake or is he in Jason's dream? Maybe, maybe Jason sees it as non-threatening. Mm. It's possible. I guess we'll have to find out. Yeah. Maybe we're not done with the Jason. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I think that's, I know there's 10 of them. And then plus that one makes it 11. I don't know if you have the stomach for this, Brian. Well, uh, maybe, maybe we, uh, watch some other movies, uh, <laughs> in the, in the meantime. And just like, just like Jason lies dormant for decades upon end, maybe we'll stumble back into his, uh, reserves. Yep. Sounds good. All right, sir. Well, uh, All right. I guess, uh, I guess at some point in the future, we may revisit this series, but at the moment we're laying this to rest in a barn. Yeah. And uh, hang, hanging it uh, from the hayloft. That's right. Yeah. Yeah. We're getting in the canoe and we're rowing out for a nice night's sleep. Yeah. We're going to have to. Uh, um, yeah. I ran out. So yeah, right. sounds good. Okay. okay. <laughs>